Welcome back to Jimbo Radio. I'm Jimbo, and this is episode 15, The Prestige Trap. Joining me for episode 15 is Billy Trout, author of Disassembling and Packaging. Specifically, we're going to discuss his article titled The Prestige Trap, which is part of his Employee Factory series. You can find links to Billy's writing in the show notes. Billy and I's conversation revolves around his article, but I don't think it's necessary to have read his article prior to listening. All right, Billy, welcome. How's it going? Billy, to start us off, can you briefly explain and summarize what the prestige trap is for listeners who are unfamiliar with the term? So the prestige trap is pretty simple. It basically boils down to a very simple argument that People run into problems when they try to measure their own self-worth and um, try to make key decisions in their life based off of others' opinions. So the prestige trap um, covers about three things. Um, It covers how people can put themselves in a bad position when applying to colleges um, and then when choosing their major and as a result, um, choosing their first job. And basically, in all three of these instances, it's a very unique decision that somebody has to make that especially the college decision, they haven't had to make a decision as important as that, or one that will be as, I guess you could say like defining of their future. Um, And often you find a lot of people that weren't really given the tools or weren't emphasized to look at their own uniqueness and think about what would be best for them. So they put themselves in debt to go to a more prestigious school. Um, Or on the other hand, the expense of college forces them to focus too much on the numbers and the costs, and they might go somewhere where they know they're not going to be happy or where they might not grow. And then if you keep with that mentality, there's a good likelihood somebody's going to choose a major for more money um, because of how people tend to compare to themselves, that they're going to maximize money and minimize everything else. Um, And then that obviously leads into the same thing as, as, uh, as jobs. So the issue with that is that there's no really right answer for what school a person sh- what a, uh, what school everybody should go to or what major everybody should do. So it it takes a seriously balanced approach, and somebody has to really be able to look internally and understand their goals and what they prioritize and measure it for themselves. So somebody can totally go to college and you know pick a major that maximizes money because that's what matters to them. Um, but that's something that they have to kind of get to on their own internally. Um, because if you go in with that approach and then you leave college and, you know, you don't really understand what you like, you don't know what makes you happy. You don't like your job. All the money in the world isn't going to, you know, help you socialize better. and is going to help you sleep better at night. So the prestige trap is basically the idea that, you know, we're very unique, um, beings at the individual level and that we should be treating ourselves as such, but we don't always. So if we're talking about prestigious schools, I think that's a very small portion of the population. It sounds like it doesn't really matter who it is. It could be anyone, whether they're going to a community college or whether they're just going to a local college. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it applies to like a step up. I mean, prestige is like, obviously you think of prestigious schools, we think of like the top 20, 50 schools in the US or whatever, probably even more than that. But it basically applies to somebody choosing to put themselves in debt instead of say, going to a community college or going to a different school. It's basically taking that extra step up for the sole reason that you think that name will matter so much more to other people or to your job prospects rather than finding balance on your own. It's a function that doesn't just happen at the top. It happens at every level. Um, so you've like a bunch of group of friends that, you know, are all going to like a step above a community college, like a local state school um, and, or maybe not local because the next statement, but anyways, 
let's say that for you and your financial situation, it makes sense to go to a community college, but instead you choose to go with your friends and you come in debt because you don't want to be perceived as, you know, less intelligent or anything like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a top-down function um, at really every level. Going to community college would be a maximizing return, a return on investment idea. But as far as deciding which route to go with the education would be where the person needs to do some type of self-exploration. Yeah, exactly. Figure out priorities and interests. So how does one do that? You read a lot. <laughs> That's why. Let's say someone, they graduated from high school. They have the ability as far as to get into a community college. They are not interested in reading. They have below average re reading skills. I mean, how does someone like this go about exploring, uh, fi figuring out where they should go or, wh or whether they should even go to community college? This does, this article does cover like the going, the decided on going to college aspects, but like reading was not like, you know, don't go like pick up like Lord of the Rings and read it. That won't, might not help you in this situation is just try to learn as much as you can about other fields and think about yourself. And that can be reading or that can be, you know, just talking to more people, just talking to, you know, people in the neighborhood, older people that work different jobs and being like, Hey, like, what do you do? And then being like, Hmm, would I be interested in that? Um, kind of like, with a while like ignoring income to some extent um at least you're trying to determine interest and you, then you can control for that later but um i think the best idea is to try to leave your peer group i think is what i'm saying um it's just leave your peer group and start discussing other different types of jobs and then what if while you're asking these people that that you know these other people what if they actually tend to agree with the prestige idea or at least maybe kind of like blindly pursuing certain careers because they do pay well yeah i mean but that that can be very important you know by to people on a case-by-case -case basis you know what i mean the point that the pursuit trap also makes is that like there's no one size fits all answer you know so for everybody that might not be important but say if somebody wants to have you know numerous children let's say they want to have five six children that they want to you know try to at least like keep alive kids are expensive you know <laughs> um like it might make sense to maximize money a little bit more but if you're running into somebody who's maximizing money and you know not really saving anything and not putting it into their family and stuff like that for me um it, it just when i was younger that for me was always something i thought was odd and a red flag and i don't know if that comes down to to parenting or that comes down to the people i've met um but you know i mean th there's there's a, a right reason and a wrong reason um, to do everything. And there's not like a true one size fits all or, you know, one path that is right for everybody. So, you know, it's just a lot of feeling around. Think about what you liked. Um, think about if you liked reading, if you liked writing, if you liked science and like, you know, subsectors within that and then figure out how much they pay and then think to yourself, mm, all right, like, well, is that, is that a number I can be happy with that that can give me the material things I need in my life? Is that something that's good enough for me? And then you look at college and you go, mm, is that enough debt or is that too much debt? Like, um, can I be affording that or should I just do a community college or a state school route? It's just a lot of figuring it out. But the basically what it boils down to is not letting other people's um, viewpoints influence your decision too much, um, especially when they're on a, you know, attempted one size fits all basis. I absolutely agree about the everyone's going to have a different approach. And 
in some way. And for most of the last probably 100 years, at least, an education, a college education, a higher education has always been one of the best investments a person could possibly do. Right. But I think, at least in the 21st century, I think that investment is is going down, if not deteriorating rapidly, and especially for certain fields. Whereas a lot of the fields that someone might go into, you think, oh yeah, someone that has a bachelor's degree makes X amount of money over the course of their career. But that doesn't apply to every single bachelor's degree that you could possibly no, get. No, definitely not. I always thought those were silly too. And I think this is a huge problem with young people because they don't really understand statistics very yeah. well. And this was something that I was definitely a victim of. You know, your teachers tell you, society tells you, follow your passion. And I was definitely un under that trap where I was trying to find my passion. I wanted to follow my passion. If you follow your passion, you never work a day your entire yeah. life. <laughs> I mean, to me, that just has worked out to be complete bullshit in my life. I've actually maybe wasted some opportunities where I could have had a more meaningful or at least a, a field that I would have been more content with that maybe would have paid better or maybe would have gave me opportunities to do something else that I wanted to do right. better. But instead, I kind of was just going with what I was interested in and I got a couple degrees that are almost useless for, for me now. So I kind of feel like I was following self-exploration through my personal interest. I didn't do a very good job. I didn't really have any mentors helping me for college. I just kind of followed what I was interested in at the time. And then when I was interested in something else, I just went back to school and re-followed right. that. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a challenging problem. And I think our education system, which your article gets into, I think it's failing students for not really giving them a, a wider perspective on how to figure out these these questions you basically get like one of two messages and that's to maximize quantitatives or to follow your dream which is pretty arbitrary or your passion which is very arbitrary um and you know like i think that there's i think there's, there's two things um you know that the follow your passion can be dangerous of and the first is that a lot of times when you tell a kid to go follow their passion blindly, often they don't have as strong of an understanding of what the day-to-day -day life, you know, the financial pay and the, you know, full path would look like for them if they did. Um, and I think a lot of that ignorance leads to my second point, which is that, you know, people can almost take it as, you know, a reason to stop looking at other options. And I think when you're young, there's, there's so much out there. So it, it becomes pretty difficult where they're like, well, like, for me, example, like my passion was writing. My passion's English. Um, that's why I write. Like I don't touch something that's English. I I work in something that requires me to put a bunch of different ideas together, um, and it pushes me to do a little bit of writing, but a lot of abstract, you know, idea synthesis, which is basically what writing essays is, which is what I do. So I had to find something that was a little bit more different that would also satisfy my material needs because. Um, I actually almost left my college after the first year to go do English. And then I was like looking at English majors and the job prospects. I was like, well, I don't really want to be a journalist. That's not why I'm writing. Um, so something I'm picking up a little bit later in life and then, you know, hoping that if I ever do retire, then I can, you know, pursue that on my own, you know? Um, but I just think it's a matter of people not really understanding what that question means, you know, at that age. And I would say the English major is one of the more useful majors that that's very popular but it, same thing like people young people don't understand the struggle and grind of being a journalist either oh, i mean there's oh, yeah. 
ton of rejection, ton of work, a ton of being paid poorly for a while. You know, you're, you're having roommate, like you're going to have roommates for a decent amount of time and you might end up stuck doing uh, some type of technical writing or, you know, just mindless content writing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's kind of what I meant where people don't really understand what something entails. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. Truly. And I think that's that's a big problem. But like, you know, I don't know. You can get into how to combat that. And I don't really have a great answer either. So I think there's probably not enough teachers per student in, you know, 99% of schools. I think that might help younger kids be more ready to go talk to other people, more comfortable if they are, you are very comfortable with an adult figure. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have career fairs. People will talk to you um, at, at most schools and a lot of high schools. So, you know, it's just it, it, it's a tough one, but I don't really think there's a good answer for that other than, you know, hoping somebody reads this and is like, oh, wait, there's you need to balance things or even the uh, I forgot who I linked. I linked like a college prep website on how to choose a major. And I thought their approach was really was really useful because it, it put in a good balance of lifestyle, career path finances and interests, um, which I think are four things that people need to consider um, and weigh for themselves. And if any young people or anyone that's interested in a career change, the Bureau of Labor, I think it's called statistics. BLS has some really good information for for US professions yeah. and jobs and, and the and the content on there as far as just knowing how much people pay, how much education you need, how many other people have that job or have those 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 credentials, just very helpful information. Because yeah, you you there might be a job that you really like and then you might find out that it's oversaturated with other people that are all have graduate degrees. Right. Yeah, do you really want to stay in that field as a going into debt for 8 years just to match you know the other hundreds of people that are all applying for the same jobs right and you know for some people the answer might be yes but you'd imagine that most people that were told to finally follow their passion the answer would be no you know <laughs> so i did teach for for several years and young people are dumb and and young people don't take it personal i was young before and i was also very dumb if you go into a regular english classroom in high school and you ask all the boys what they're going to do when they're older, like 50% of them are going to tell you they're going to be a basketball player or a football player or a rapper. And I mean, like if they, if they literally follow that passion, the odds are so stacked against them. And if teachers and, and adults are, are encouraging you or them to, to follow their passion when your passion is something that's so either random or luck based or genetic based, I mean, you're just really kind of getting set up to be disappointed in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's true. And that's a lot of function of, you know, men, especially when they're in tight peer groups, such as high schools and middle schools, um, you know, being very reliant on status. So I, I am curious because you wonder how many people are like masking their answers there, but that's like a whole different, that, that's a whole different question. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. Um, I think you'll probably get more realistic ones, at least, at least from my memory and like people I've spoken to in the, yeah, that age group. Like once you get to later high school, um, they start to get a little bit more realistic. And that's honestly when I think it starts to matter too, um, that you won't hear as much of that, but you might hear like doctor, lawyer and other just, you know, big, um, big money, high status jobs, because, you know, that's what young guys care about. They're finally getting pumped with testosterone. They got cute girls all over the class. You know, they're not going to say they want to, uh, they want to go be a writer, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> 
it's kind of like the tale the tale of two cities you know within the school you have a tale of two schools you have or at least or at least this is what i found in a lot of schools you have the ap tracks where yeah you do have everyone in there wants to be a doctor or a lawyer or something you know like something that has a graduate degree but then the more working class families i mean you do i mean you do hear just a lot of these like fairy tale fantasy you you know you have these boys that tell you they're going to be professional football players they're not even playing on a football team i mean it's like it's like mind boggling yeah a lot of that a lot of that comes down to the the, the parental level um I'm two and you know a lot of parents don't want to be honest with their kids and like i was very lucky to have two parents in the first place like like very lucky and then having two that were you know pretty much assholes when i was younger and were pretty pretty honest with me like hey man like you're not going to do this like when i when i was playing a sport it was like i would not pursue this um and which was like discouraging when you're like a teenager but it also kind of like forces you to look at your own numbers and your own probabilities and go yeah probably not the best thing to put all my hours into um so a lot of that is probably out of the school's hands in in, in my guess how how much is to blame versus school system versus society versus marketing versus media? Where where would you put either the most blame or like the area that could be easiest to fix? It's a really tough situation because like a lot of marketing is really, you know, it, it, it's quite hard to plant ideas in marketing. It's something that I don't really hear people consider very much when, you know, they, they go to tackle marketing. Um are going to say bad things about marketing is it's very hard to market something to somebody if they don't already have some inner idea in them um that like either it's like a desire for increased wealth or increased status or say something as simple as like you can't really sell umbrellas in arizona you know like if there's not a demand for it the marketing strategy isn't going to go after that group so that leads into media which i do think i don't know if you mean mass or social media but i think both as a whole do kind of play into it um, where you have people on a peer level um, with social media. Actually, the, the piece I'm writing now, um, I did a lot of research in social media, and, um, and you know, it creates a lot of self-comparisons between people, and it makes people a little bit more hyper-aware um, of how they rank towards other people in measurable scales. You know, things like like counts, follower counts. But those also lead into grades. Those also lead into prestige in the school, and that also leads into you know how much money they're making after school. It's the same basis of making people compare. Um, themselves to others so i think that might open a door for you know people to market um you know high paying jobs and stuff like that um over anything else and to try and shit on people that might not make as much or might have picked something with a better you know whether it be work-life balance or interest income balance um for them i think that has a lot of the reasons with the, the prestige drop and then as far as the school system goes i think it's kind of I always break down the school system into like, like the people on the ground floor and then literally everybody else um, up top. So people that give funding and that can be politicians, that can be districts is how much funding goes towards the school. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem because I think, I think like, you know, you, you, it's very hard to convince young kids things. People in general don't like being told what to do and they hate unsolicited advice, you know? So it's just, it's tough to be like, oh, like these teachers aren't doing a good enough job of showing kids the other way. And it's like, well, they don't really have any time in their day and they have like 25, 30 kids in their class. Is that really fair? Um, and, and I think it's not. 
So I think a lot of problems you get with the prestige trap where you're maybe not receiving as much as a holistic education and as many internal skills or internal critical thinking skills to learn more about yourself probably comes down to there not being enough teachers in the classrooms and there not being enough resources. Um, more so than saying, oh, like these teachers and these principals, these guys are dicks. Like, so I think people are generally doing the best with what they're working with. Um, so I, I think that kind of how those three play into each other where the schools aren't able to prevent the effect that you get from, from social media. Um, and then obviously, you know, marketing. I've had this conversation many times with the problems with the education system are such difficult problems. I mean, there's no easy solution for any of the problems in education. Like a very, very difficult web to, uh, to untangle and then, you know, put back together in the right way. It's, it's not, it's not easy. I would like to see more alternative routes being being provided for especially the students that don't fit into sit down and shut up and pay attention type of environment because that schools even schools are still run very similar to a factory as far as you know bell schedules sorted by age most of the kids that struggle in school besides the ones that are that are struggling at home with the adverse effects of poverty or or unstable family situations that, you know, the students outside of that, that are struggling, they're just not really built to, to sit down and pay attention to academic stuff most of the day. Right. Yeah. My, it's ironic. You mentioned the factory because the series name is the employee factory. Um, and then the second one kind of gets the second article in the installment um, gets into that. And, you know, it, it's a really tough one because the sit down and, and, and shut up thing. Um, I at least feel like that is that carries back to what I was saying about funding before, um, because it's schools trying to give you know the greatest good that they can to each individual student, and the best way to do that is to minimize distractions. You know, so that's where you get the docile nature is because once again, there's not enough um, teachers in general, obviously, but there's not enough teachers per student where they have to try and figure out okay, how can I try to teach this giant group of kids? Am I gonna really? spend the time trying to nurture an individual who's acting out a little bit or who seems like they're lagging or am I going to focus on the ones that I might be able to get more from and I think it just puts teachers in a kind of crappy situation um but then again I think it really just comes back to funding it's not fully their fault yeah I I think if you compare the U.S. to other countries there's countries that are getting a way better bang for you know as far as like money spent there's countries that are getting a way better education system on less money than than the US. So I I don't think money is even the greatest issue. I do think you need more teachers and you might need certain students that need different a different environment kind of like I mentioned with maybe some some type of alternative route. Right. I I think there's plenty of money as is. Maybe to reallocate it as far as Rich areas obviously have a lot more money. That's that's a problem. And poor areas have less money, so that I mean that creates big problems that leaves a lot of students behind. That's kind of what I meant. Is like there's not really like an equal. There's not there's not like a remotely equal distribution, which means that the places that are going to have the more at risk kids aren't as adequately um, prepped to deal with it. Obviously, yeah. So those places need need to be funded, like the rich schools, where the rich schools could get away with way less funding because all their kids have stable environments, uh, ed educated parents. 
Right. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a it's a diff it's a really uh, it's a little bit of a difficult question. Um, you know, I'm really writing this. I was only really writing the series. Um, almost like obviously, I didn't give them to any of the, you know, young people that I'm close with, whether by family or through like family slash friendships. You know, almost written for them to be like, hey, view things in like an objective way and try to worry about yourself and spend the most time on on yourself and your own interests and the best ways that you can you know maybe deal with this so you don't become a victim of it that was kind of the purpose of the writing it, it wasn't as much of a tackling on you know if we were to break the whole thing down how would i build it back it's just honestly i haven't ever really spent too much time into it um figuring out the you know the best practices or any alternative alternative routes or anything like that well people that spend their whole life on it don't know so <laughs> <laughs> so one of the the issues that that i've kind of come across recently is the constitution doesn't acknowledge how education works at all each state can do whatever they want and the federal government has some ways to kind of manipulate a little bit with funding but there's really no structure at all from the foundation of our country and how our government works for how to run schools it's very it's a very fluid thing too like you wonder how like say like what would you think would be in the constitution that would carry from 76 all the way to today um because it's kind of constantly an evolving part of our society so I, i'm just i'm just curious Oh no, I I think it's probably I think it's probably better off that it wasn't in there because that's the other thing about our constitution is it's so difficult to change anything. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. And especially in today's politics, you can't change it's almost impossible to change anything that's going to stick. The president can do a bunch of executive orders that'll get changed next time a new political party's in office. This I haven't looked up but I wonder what newer countries and newer constitutions have have added as far as education goes. It it seems it seems like you know we already mentioned the funding. It seems like localized funding is is not a good recipe for a nation of people. Uh, pro probably not. I'm I'm curious. I'm curious as well. But like, I wonder how much of that is newer countries and how much of that is more fluid countries that aren't as static um, with, with, within their laws, you know? Like, I would, I would probably point towards Scandinavia first um, for somewhere that has a different approach and seems to always move pretty quickly within their, um, within changes and stuff to their to their society and to their law. Um, because I, I'm trying to think of new countries since you said it, and there isn't really, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, like, there's not really anybody who's won independence recently that, you know, has enough wealth as the U.S. where they'd be as developed, you know. Um, so trying to look at more fluid countries moving, preferably in Europe. When I say newer constitutions, I mean I'm talking maybe like a hundred years versus three hundred. Maybe South Korea, uh, maybe some of the other Asian countries that are really prosperous. But but now uh, now I'm just speculating because I, I really don't know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's it's all good. We can just move on to it. I kind of want to go back to the allegory of the cave thing. Yeah, let's do that. For listeners, I'm going to do a whole entire episode on the allegory of the cave. And do you want to connect it back to the prestige trap? A lot of the times when you read the allegory of the cave, it's typically through um, like a really heavy political lens or, you know, like a big oil is doing this to you, like something like that, where you're always looking at 
either politics or corporations. Um, but I think it's a lot more interesting to look at it through an individual level um, and an, on a peer group level. So that's kind of what it attempts to do in relation to the prestige trap. The allegory of the cave basically means to kind of leave the cave and make your own shadows and explain the whole world rather than let your major decisions in life be influenced by those around you. And the reason why I chose the allegory of the cave is because obviously that's present with the carrying of the shadows. And that also that a lot of people don't really know that they're doing that, especially young people. In the same way the prisoners didn't know that they were in a cave, a lot of young people don't realize how much weight and how much of an effect um, letting other people's opinions um, can influence them in their major decisions. So to escape the cave pretty much means to go find your own individuality and your own path. Why does the first prisoner leave? So what? why does the first person leave the the binds of society? I don't know the answer in real terms. I know historically, so like through Plato's thing, it was a thought experiment. Because yes. originally, you know, he gets pulled out. He's like, oh my God, what the hell? He tries to go back in. And then, you know, somebody else makes him go outside again. I, I don't really know why somebody would leave. Like, you know, everybody can have a different spark, but I would believe that most reasons would base off of trying to find fulfillment, which I write about um, a little bit in this piece and a lot more in the last education piece, which basically means like raising your base level happiness by attending to your interests, the people that you love um, and finding somewhat of enjoyment or at least not pure pain <laughs> at work. So I think that might be a reason why we're, say, people get really unhappy with their life and decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to start looking inwards a little bit more. That can be akin to leaving the cave. I'm a little conflicted because because I, I'm a fairly rugged individual myself. Is that because that's just my personality or did I learn something along the way? I mean... And then I also see a conflict between everyone, for the most part, in general. In general, people don't think they're the prisoner in the cave. They think the people that don't think like they think or that don't share their values are the prisoners in the cave. Kind of gets us back to how do you influence or encourage someone to try and wander outside of the cave? I've always had a pretty weird career path. Um and obviously doing the writing, which isn't directly related is to it. And I think like, the, just speaking from experience, the reason that I was able to kind of leave the cave, so to speak, is that I've always had a really wide worldview. I always consumed a lot of books. I've always been interested, like I'm, I'm American and like my favorite sport is English soccer and I will fight you to the death on it. Um, I've always just kind of had a very wide worldview because I was spent a lot of time reading as a kid, um, which gave me the tools to be very curious. Um, so I think like the best way, if we were to change the question to how does somebody get out, is to have a wide enough worldview to realize that the people directly around you aren't all that there is, you know. Um, so I would say just to widen the worldview and to genuinely encourage people to explore new ideas, new thoughts, new places, cultures um, through reading or through the Internet, which, you know, it's a great resource. And then, well, who's to say that that isn't just presenting a new shadow of reality. Maybe maybe you're leaving one cave for another cave. If you see an abundance of caves, you can pick whichever one you want to hang out in. So I, I think the point is that, you know, I or people should kind of synthesize 
their own belief system through a lot of unrelated things in a world where, especially in the U.S., most religions aren't as strong as they used to be. So you don't have that same offering of, you know, the way to look at the world is what the church says or what the Quran says. You don't really have that um, as much in the U.S. or, you know, in the other developed states as you may have had in, you know, a century or even more so two centuries ago. So I, I think it requires people to realize how much is really out there. And then from there, they can make their choice about what they want to do. Are you familiar with the the paradox of choice? I think that's the title of the book. I, I'm not. Can you please fill me in? The famous TED Talk is about the the different types of spaghetti sauce at the grocery store, and so like the more the more choices there are available, the more stress that people have, and they end up they just like don't even get a spaghetti sauce because yeah. they can't decide which of the 57 spaghetti sauces they you know they should get. At some point, do you have too many choices? Romance as well. You know, like with, with online dating, now all of a sudden, every person on the planet is a potential uh, mating partner, whereas maybe it was a little simpler a couple hundred years ago where you only knew a hundred and something people and you just find someone there. And at some point, do we have too many choices? I think like maybe in like a spaghetti sauce thing in a situation, because I've heard this before, um, I, I think it does kind of make sense. But I, I honestly don't really feel that way um, because I think you can pull a lot of things or a lot of ideas from different professions and different types of writing and different cultures. And I think you can kind of choose what you naturally gravitate to. And I think that's more of a net positive than, say, if we were to go back to the 1700s or 1800s when you had really small communities um, and, you know, small dating pools and stuff like that. And, I, and at least in my experience, um, the whole there's so many potential mates out there like i just think people because of that when you find somebody that is actually special to you it it sticks out a lot more because you see how much there is out there that may not be as unique to you and i think that can also be carried over into cultures and ideas that people might want to incorporate into their own life so i think while there are so many choices you might still have like that rouse pasta sauce that you just got to have and you love because you know it's better than everything else and it takes time to find that but i certainly think having more choices could lead people to greater appreciation of of just one choice at some point you just have to be content with with what you have though yeah you know obviously there's there's a point where you have to for younger people, like kind of grow up, pick something, you know, <laughs> like you have to eventually make a choice there. Um, but I think having more options would only, you know, help you make a better choice. And hopefully if, if it works out well, I'll appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I mean, being decisive is very important too. I think that's something um, that you don't see a lot in, in young people, especially in their twenties when there's so many ways that you can, so many directions to go in and so many ways to be pulled. Um so I think decisiveness is an important part of not falling into um, the choices paradox, I believe you called it. Loosely related, I've been really diving deep into my favorite novel, uh, Siddhartha by Her Herman Hesse. You, you, you may be familiar with it. You probably are. I am not, unfortunately. No, yeah, really? Oh. You can throw me at the stake now. It's okay. <laughs> it's very short. I highly recommend you read it. I'm going to read it again next year as part of a book club. So you can feel, feel free to join us. But I've been connecting 
the ideas in that book, which which is all about self discovery and actualization. So it it really relates with what you're saying. But but then I also just think because the characters, he's pretty much depressed at the beginning. And he's always going back to depression throughout the story until, you know, he, he finally isn't. But just reminds me of of the hedonic treadmill. It's also called uh, hedonic adaption. Pretty much for anyone listener that's unfamiliar with it, it's just this, this psychological theory that we all have just a baseline emotional state. And regardless of what happens to us in our life, we could have something really good happen or really bad happen. But we tend to go back to that that baseline state. So it keeps us on a treadmill. We're always uh, chasing something that's going to make us feel as good as is our last vacation. But regardless of how good our vacation is, we kind of end up back at our baseline state. And this is a personal thing. I have way more than any of my ancestors. I mean, I have so much more than every single one of my ancestors as far as material possessions, uh, wealth, education. I, I honestly don't think I'm any happier than any of them. Right. Yeah. I think it's two different questions though. Um, so first I, I don't, I don't, and I, I've heard of the Hedonic treadmill for quite a long time now I'm outside of large events, typically material events. Um, so think like making a big purchase, taking a vacation, graduating from college, getting a first job, like all those things, I think definitely to some extent knocked me down. Um, but I felt like they might've moved me up a, like just a, a little smidget each time. And I think those things, I think just because you go up in mental state after like a big achievement or a very pleasurable experience, going down doesn't mean you always go all the way down. As I think when you achieve something, you you um, you build competence and that kind of scales upwards over time to give you more confidence to go try other things. Um, but if you have things that are really truly hedonistic behaviors, so thinking about blind hookups, spending money on nice clothes, going on vacations, you know, as I've always linked hedonism to either materialism slash, you know, drug usage and alcoholism and shit like that. I think those things are very true of the hedonic treadmill because I don't think they ever really change your inner mental state a lot. But I think that larger achievements do have the ability to. And then further, I think small lifestyle choices do raise and have raised my um, my mental state a lot especially in like the past decade or so, um, picking up more books, running more, eating a little bit healthier, not spending as much money on silly things. You know, I think those things and those changes that you make and the little learnings you get from them do raise you up. Um, but I certainly think a lot of large material decisions um, or decisions that are in the eye of society um, probably don't do as good of a job of raising your mental state. The hedonic treadmill, it's not necessarily pure just seeking pleasure yeah I'm, I'm aware of that but i found that pure pleasure seeking experiences tended to align more with that than any larger achievement um that they'll have like most people i know um i'm not there yet most people i know that have kids are a lot you know happier after they had kids and then some are obviously a lot less happier but i think that certain large achievements where you can really look at yourself in the mirror and say i did this like that sticks with you for for your whole life um and i think that in the past certainly raised my mental state even when those things were getting out of bad situations you know like and just returning to a sense of normalcy or like i'm proud of myself that i was able to figure that out or figure that out externally or internally i think things like that certainly raise the state but that doesn't mean you're not going to get depressed again <laughs> that's the point i'm making 
uh, you might go down. You might go down again, but your baseline might might still be a little bit higher when you return from the depths. This is the problem I have. So kind of loosely based to the hedonic treadmill, evolutionarily speaking, if a young person was completely content at some point in life, they're probably way less motivated to have more offspring, to do things that are going to benefit you know, the tribe or, or the group. So I do think we are at least a little bit, bio, at least on average, most of us, we are biologically wired to kind of want more, to kind of keep wanting, to kind of keep achieving, to keep seeking, because for the environments that humans evolved in, which is not the environments we live in now, that is what benefited us most. I do kind of think modern society is creating problems that humans aren't biologically built for. Obviously, with the whole environment thing is true and all wanting more thing is something I felt. It's just finding the balance between, you know, wanting to do more with your life as well as taking stock of what you've already done and where you are and trying to appreciate it. If you're constantly thinking, I'm nothing until I get this or I'm nothing until I work here or achieve this or this much money, like you're kind of setting yourself up for failure by not taking stock of where you are in the moment and how far you've come. So I think wanting more, like as a principle on its own is fine. But you have to be going through it with a balanced approach, you know. And I think modern society, like as you said, certainly with like celebrity culture in, you know, the end of last century and then social media today, I think you're constantly reminded of the material things that you don't have, um, which could set people up for, you know, not feeling as good about themselves and then wanting to go for more. So so it, it's a sticky one, but it's got to be appreciative. I also had this idea. It's it's not a great idea, but I think it's interesting. What if the idea of wisdom is just an illusion? Whereas people gain wisdom as they're older, but really, but maybe they're not actually gaining any wisdom. They're just becoming more content kind of for the evolutionary purpose. Maybe once you're elder, you know, older age, the best thing that you can do to pass your genes on is just kind of be chill and relax and just help out however you can. And so maybe this idea of wisdom is not is non-existent. It's just an illusion. It's just another shadow. And really you just find that wise people are someone that that no no longer have like a strong desire or drive. And so they just kind of fall into a contentment. What do you mean in under what presumed definition of wisdom or like I, I just want to clarify that before I before I respond. Sure. I think anything that 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 one might find as being wise or wisdom, someone that you would see as being wise, typically maybe being older or just being content or maybe being more like a monk or whatever your definition is. Maybe they just found like an equilibrium with their mental state and the environment that they're in. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about purely philosophical wiseness and a way to live your life, I would certainly, you know, be like, Maybe wise isn't the right word to choose for this people, but when you look at experience-based wisdom, so people that may have worked in a certain field for a long time, have written a lot, have had kids, um, often they're just sharing their own experiences that they've accumulated on their own. And obviously, those are up to each person. You can choose to listen to them or not or to believe them or not, um, but they're 
sharing earned experiences. So I don't think wisdom in a purely like pure definition of wisdom, if we were to say it's accumulated knowledge based on experience, I think that's very real. But if we were to discuss the wise person who is very calm and has maybe a very laissez-faire approach to life, um, then, 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 I mean, it sounds plausible, but it really sounds like a category error um, more than anything else. I think you gain wisdom when you go out and do something. And I think you, when every, all the lessons you take from that are, are wisdom and it's transmitted from the environment to you, but I would say knowledge, something that can be attained through reading or through, through learning things from others. You know what I mean? I think it's, I don't think it requires as much of a, I, I learned this from this experience. Um, I think that would be a little bit of wisdom, but I think if you were talking about knowledge, it'd be, oh, I read this book, I studied this, I studied that, all the learnings from those studies would be knowledge. That's kind of where I've always drawn the line between wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, I really think you should read Siddhartha. <laughs> <laughs> I think we kind of covered everything. I think I think we agreed a lot more than I thought we agreed before we started having a you know a thoughtful conversation together. Do you think prestige was the right was the right title? And do you think it has any any merit? The prestige trap. Yeah, that's a a common term, right? I remember it's not really common. Yeah, I actually didn't know that until after I wrote it. Oh, really? <laughs> Where <laughs> it was fully organic, and then when I went to look it up, and most people look at it as um, chasing prestige at the, at, the, at the highest level, rather than my my definition of it. So I, I released it. Had a little bad. Somebody, somebody uh, reached out to me. I was like, "Oh shit! I didn't even know this was a thing." But maybe I implicitly did in the back of my mind, but couldn't recall it. I think there could be some merit in prestige. You could take the knowledge of people that have acquired or have written, and you might come to the conclusion that that there is value in prestige. There's certainly value in the networking aspects of certain of certain prestigious or organizations i think i mostly agree with you as far as the actual value that one will gain from the prestigious school specifically i think is absolutely worthless outside of the the networking i think it's really just the tool so what i mean by that is that if you're applying for like a, a, a large company or organization of any standing that might not take the time to interview every applicant i think if you have a school with, you know, any type of rank, it kind of serves as like a check mark. So I think for a lot of people, when you meet them and they say where you went to school, they automatically make a distinction of you no matter what level it is, you know. Um, so I think it's useful as like a check mark. It can open more doors, but that's kind of as far as utility goes goes in my in my book. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, it's not worthless information, of course. You know, the prestigious company has has earned at least some of that prestige yeah. for a reason they've been successful Absolutely. in at least multiple ways so it's not it's not nothing it's not worthless information no not no not at all i just say it's not what you should drive the point article saying you shouldn't drive your life off that you know um but obviously there's there's merit that's why people are able to use it as a as, as a check mark you know um and as a like a stamp of validation and then the things you mentioned about you know the exploration I mean, I 100% agree with you. I, I, to to go into anything, to study one idea and be like, oh yeah, that's the idea for me, and not to explore or study other ideas. I mean, that 
I can't imagine a whole lot of people agreeing that that would be a good idea. No, no, obviously not. That wasn't the the intention of finding you know your interests. People have they're all all their own balances um, and priorities in their lives, and they're all born from different family scenarios. Um, and it just takes some time to figure out what's what's best for that person on an individual level. That's the whole point of the article. It's difficult for young people. Identity is a huge problem. Yeah, finding yourself is going to take a while. And when young people ask me for advice, I tell them, don't go to college, go and work for a while, go to community college. If you must, it's cheaper and just take a bunch of different classes. And once you realize that society and life is, is, you know, hard or difficult or whatever you, your conclusion you come to, then you can evaluate better, maybe how you want to fit in it. But this is also like, there's also a decent amount of privilege in someone that can do that. What do you mean? Somebody that can go work because they won't be making enough to support themselves, likely, without a degree? Luck, luck involved. Luck and privilege enough to, to not uh, fall into the trap or to not follow what society or your school or what your parents. I mean, yeah, I mean, to go against your parents is even kind of a big one. Yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of luck of who you're able to meet when you're young um, in terms of anybody older or any sort of, I, I don't, until like I really see like mentorship in like the way that I see it explained online occur really in real life, I'm not really going to believe in it. Um, like a mentor doesn't make all your problems go away, but I think having somebody that, assuming you are somewhat hungry um, in, in a way to figure out more about the world, having somebody who can give you a um, an assessment that are your parents is is extremely valuable and a lot of people a lot of kids don't really don't get that when they're growing up whether it be through like a coach or you know the person you you work with at your your after school job and, and, and stuff like that a lot of people don't really get that which i think sucks i think that's probably contributes to it as that helps you pull away from your peer group a little bit by like i came said uh, like i said earlier by widening your perspective because um, suddenly when you're talking about your life, you're not just talking to your parents and people the same age as you, you know. If you could convince a young person to, to put less value in what their peers think, that would be huge for that for the individual. Almost impossible, right? Yeah, I mean, the technologies that are thriving today would, wouldn't do as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. One more idea. I do think parents as a default is also a, maybe a pretty good. I can't imagine too many other people having my best interest in their consideration as parents. Granted, not everyone's parents are created equal, but right. I, I do think my sister-in-law, she's single. She's been single for a while. And so her mom is kind of bugging her asking her if she wants her to, you know, try and find someone at, at their church. And she's kind of insulted by it. And I, and I just told her, I was like, you know what? Well, actually like nobody's going to find you a better man than your mom, especially not you. <laughs> Definitely not. No. <laughs> so, I mean like your mom's not going to care if they're good looking, your mom's not going to care if they're fun. Your mom's going to get someone that's a good person. It's going to treat you right. And is going to be able to provide a financial stability. And I was like, you know, actually that's, that's actually a pretty good deal. No, it's not, it's not a bad deal. No. And yeah, I think as a blanket statement, nobody has your best interest at heart. However, from, you know, experience of friends and stuff and really trying to 
turn the years back and remember here. Um, often I've felt that some people's parents and, you know, mine were guilty sometimes too, is they'll think of the things that they didn't do and that they regret and they'll try to make sure you don't make the same mistake. Now. Um, but that's not always the right path to go down. You know, like think like, oh, you should, I never got a degree. You should get a degree. And like the question goes as far as that. If you get a degree, you'll be fine. You know, and as we talked about earlier, it's not that simple. Um, then you have all parents that really put emphasis on their kids' sports and don't put emphasis on their kids' academics because, you know, dad broke his leg in baseball and killed his MLB dreams, you know? So I, I think 99% of the time they do have your best interests at heart, um, but, it, you know, you always have to take into account their their biases as you would with anybody else um, when evaluating advice, you know? Um, but that's just a little tidbit that I've been playing around with for a little bit. Billy, thanks a lot. Uh, any young people still listening? There you go. You got it. You got all the information you need. Now go out there and pick the right cave. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot for having me today. Okay. And anything else you want to plug? No, we're all good. Just check out my Substack. That's all. And it's free. Uh, the articles are very interesting. The ones I've looked at so far. I'll also leave a link to one of one of his, uh, Billy's pieces of fiction. Quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's my it's my take on EA, um, which is basically shows, hey, man, if you take this to the extreme, just categorical imperative it, what's it going to look like? Dexter Morgan. The answer is Dexter Pretty Morgan. Much. <laughs> <laughs> OK, man, peace. All right. Take care. Bye. This is a post-recording conclusion. I noticed I didn't directly answer Billy's question about the title or the use of the word prestige for his article. We briefly discussed it online after recording as well. I think prestige trap is the correct word, and I think the phenomenon does exist, but I think it exists more with the higher social classes and I'm really skeptical about how prevalent it is within the society. I, to generalize people, I don't think a lot of people are overly concerned with prestige. And like I said, I think it's more of a phenomenon with people of higher classes, people with access to the elite groups in organizations. All right, Jimbo out.